Our scripture reading this morning is in John's Gospel, chapter 12. John's Gospel, chapter 12. And we're going to read from the 35th verse to the end of the chapter. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words... And does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life, What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we consider this passage together, let's just ask for the Lord's help. God, our Father, we read in your precious word that we, with all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. And Lord, we want to be transformed into the same image. We want to be more like Christ. And so what we want this morning is not to see any man, but we want to see Christ in the word. And so we need your spirit to reveal Christ to us, that by gazing on him, we might be transformed. And so we ask it, our God, for the glory of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. Well, we're continuing here in our study of John's Gospel, chapter 12, or John's Gospel, and with the conclusion of chapter 12, we see the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry among the Jews. And there's a lot in chapter 12. This is now our third Sunday that we're spending in this chapter. And I think really to get the proper context of chapter 12, we need to do a little bit of, re- of a review of the whole passage. And we sort of see that, uh, or, or, a review of the whole chapter, so that we can see the passage in its proper context. 
And I think we see that context in three scenes uh, that lead up to this passage. In scene one, we have this little company in Bethany. And in that home, there is the witness to the Lord's resurrection power. For Lazarus is there. Without, there are powers of darkness gathering together to destroy Jesus and kill the testimony by killing Lazarus. But within, the Lord's own are gathered around him in sweet communion. Martha involved in acts of service. Lazarus listening and learning from Jesus and Mary worshiping at his feet. And all of this, I believe, is a beautiful picture of the church the witness of the church, which is the witness of Christ's resurrection power, engaged in worship, learning, and acts of service. Well, that's scene one. Scene two is the triumphal entry. The crowd had seen the raising of Lazarus, and they cannot be silenced, and they cry, Hosanna, which means save or save now. They act like it's the Feast of Tabernacles for the waving of palm branches was a feature of that feast which anticipated the Lord tabernacling among his people. But the time was not the feast of the tabernacles. It was that the Passover was at hand and the Passover lamb must be killed. And this is what occupies the Lord's mind in this chapter. That's scene two. Scene three is these Greeks that want to see Jesus. And this, I believe, anticipates the gospel going out to the nations. And we see that that theme throughout the chapter. But first, the grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die, or it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And I believe this anticipates, as I've said, the gospel going out to the Gentiles. Jesus himself says this in verse 32 as he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. But the people have kingdom ambitions. They do not understand the Messiah who will be lifted up and put to death. That has no appeal to them. And so, as the Lord's earthly ministry draws to a close, the darkness still does not comprehend the light. And so the Lord warns them in verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. And then, as if foreshadowing the coming darkness, he departs and hides himself from them, signaling the end of his public ministry to them. It's a very serious moment for Israel. They had grown used to having the Lord among them, doing signs and wonders, but they had refused to accept those signs that bore witness to him. And now the door of opportunity for Israel was closing. And it reminds me of that verse in Jeremiah 8 and 20 from which I've drawn the title for this sermon. The harvest is past. The summer is ended and we are not saved. It's a very sad scene. It reminds me of how I used to feel as a small boy at the end of the summer. As a boy, I used to spend the greater part of the summer at my grandmother's grandmothers and grandfather's cottage and I loved those long summer days by the lake camping and sitting around campfires and being with people that I loved so much and those long summer days would fly by 
But then, just as suddenly as it started, it came to an end. And I had to say goodbye to those people I love so much and be separated from that place that I love so much. And I remember how I would think to myself, if I could just have one more day, just one more day. But as sad as it was for me, there was always next year to look forward to. But here, the Lord's public ministry comes to an end, and there's a finality to it. The sense of opportunity lost forever. The Lord had performed so many signs and wonders among them, all glimpses of who he is, and all for the purpose that they might believe and have life through his name. But now the sun is setting, and the final beams are reaching out to them, and yet they are still questioning, still resisting, still rejecting. But Jesus does not engage them this time. Instead, almost as we said before, as a foreshadowing of what's what's to come, he departs and hides himself from them. And all of this serves as a warning that though God is patient and God is gracious, there comes a time when the opportunities come to an end and his pleadings cease. And here John the evangelist stops and reflects on the effect of the Lord's public ministry upon the people. And he says in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The prophet Isaiah had spoken these words 700 years prior as he prophesied about the coming Messiah and asked the question, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord had been revealed to the Jews who had witnessed the Lord's earthly ministry. They had seen God bear his arm of strength through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and those powerful signs that we've spent the last few months considering together. Turning the water into wine in chapter 2. Healing the official son in chapter 4. Healing the cripple. Uh, uh, at Bethsaida in chapter 5, feeding the 5,000 and calming the storm in chapter 6, restoring sight to this man born blind in chapter 9, and then ultimately the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And these are but seven of the signs that that are recorded for us in John's gospel. They had seen far more. And we read this in the very last verse of John's gospel where it says, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So yes, they had seen the arm of the Lord, but the question is, who had believed the report? And the answer is, very few. And it raises two questions. Why? Why did so few receive, and what would be the outcome? And I want us to consider this passage under those two headings. Why so few believed, and what would be the outcome? And we'll see that there's two points under each. Why so few believed, the reasons were hardening, or what we sometimes refer to as judicial hardening. And because, secondly, because they loved the glory that comes from man. And as to what the outcome would be, there are also two points, both a positive 
and a negative. The positive outcome was that the gospel went out to the nations. And the negative is that they will be judged by the very words they rejected. And that's our outline for our sermon this morning. So let's start with why so few received Jesus' testimony. And the answer is given here in verse 39. Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now what is John the evangelist saying here? Is he saying that because of an Old Testament prophecy, the Jews were condemned to blindness so that they could not receive? Is that what he's saying? No, rather he's saying that just as the obstinance of the people living in Isaiah's time had brought about a blindness that led them to reject God's prophets and fall under judgment, that same obstinance was still characterizing the nation 700 years later and had resulted in a blindness that kept them from recognizing and receiving their Messiah. They had refused the testimony of John. They had refused the testimony of the signs that bore witness of him. They rejected the very voice of God that bore witness to him from heaven. And somewhere along the way, God had hardened their hearts so that they could no longer receive. And this is a very serious thing. And we see it throughout the scripture that when man gives up God, God ultimately gives up man. And once that happens, there is no more opportunity for salvation. No more opportunity. For as we have in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then again in Matthew eleven twenty seven, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So unless God works in us to reveal Christ to us, we cannot see or understand. So if God is working in us to reveal Christ, and we turn away, God can send a blindness upon us so that we cannot receive. And we could turn to so many places in Scripture that prove this. Hebrews 4 and 7, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And as that verse we've quoted so many times before in Proverbs 29, 1, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. A serious phrase, beyond healing. But there's another thing that kept them, and this is the second thing, that kept them from receiving him, and we have that in verse 41 to verse 43, and I want to look at it again. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they, and here it is, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These ones did believe, but as we have said before, there is a difference between believing and receiving. There's a difference between believing and saving faith. 
They believed, but they would not confess him because they were concerned about the consequences of their confession. They were concerned that, like that man in John 9, they would be put out of the synagogue and cut off from their communities and families. And we were discussing this in our small group last week. And somebody um, mentioned that verse, and I thought it was a very relevant verse to raise in Romans 10 and 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I want to say that where there is saving faith, there is confession before man no matter what the cost. Now, it may not come all at once. That's true, too. Nicodemus first came to Jesus by night, likely for fear of his fellow Pharisees and what they would think. But it didn't stop there, did it? Later in chapter 7, in verse 50, he makes a small stand for Jesus before the chief priests and Pharisees. And then in chapter 19, he comes bringing 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to honor Jesus publicly at his burial. So what changed in Nicodemus? What changed in him to enable him to confess Jesus before man? Well, Jesus had said to him when he first met him, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I believe that, I like to believe that Nicodemus, when he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross there, he recognized who he was. And when he did, the acceptance of his contemporaries that had once been so important to him paled in comparison to the glory of God. And it was, as we see here in verse 41, it was the same for Isaiah. What enabled him to endure the scorn and ridicule and rejection of the people? It was a vision of the Lord at the start of his ministry. And that's what is being referred to in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who did Isaiah see? Let's look at those verses. You don't have to turn to it, but I want to read them because I think it's very relevant. It's referring back to Isaiah 6 when he saw the glory of the Lord. Let me read it. In the year the king Uzziah died, it's Isaiah speaking, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his, his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So let me ask you again, who did Isaiah see? And you say, well, he saw the Lord. But specifically, what do we read in verse 41? It says he saw his glory and spoke of him. Those pronouns, his and him, refer directly to Christ himself. I believe that Isaiah saw a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. And you know what it did? It devastated him. All he could say is, woe is me, for I am unclean. It was only in seeing the glory of Christ that he could see man in his proper light. For in the presence of the glory of Christ, the opinions of man matter for nothing. 
But why did the the presence of Jesus not have the same impact on the Jews? Well, one of the reasons is because Jesus veiled his glory in human flesh and came in the form of a servant. And while the law and the prophets bore witness of him, and the Father bore witness of him, and his works bore witness of him, it was only evident to the eye of faith. And where, that, where there was no faith, the glory that comes from man took priority over the glory that comes from God. And it's the same with us, dear brothers and sisters. It's only in the presence of God that we come to the end of worrying about the opinions of man. What cures an inflated sense of the importance of man is coming into the presence of God. And that's one of the reasons why we need to be here Sunday after Sunday, isn't it? That's why we need to come to the Lord's table and experience his presence. That's why we need to lift up our voices in praise to him. Because in so doing, we are transported into the presence of God. And his glory causes everything else to fade into oblivion. And it's interesting to notice when this came about in Isaiah's life. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah, that great king that ruled wisely and prosperously over Judah for 52 years, but he became too big for his own boots and he usurped the place of the priests, refused to listen to them, And refused to listen to those who corrected him. And even while he was raging against the priest who dared to confront him, leprosy broke out on his forehead and he died a leper. And so it was in the year that this intelligent, innovative, prosperous King Uzziah died. And I'm sure that Isaiah wondered who could fill these big shoes that Uzziah had left. And then he saw the Lord high and lifted up and suddenly the influence and fame and pride of Uzziah counted for nothing. And all Isaiah can do is stammer, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the presence of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And it's at this point, it's at this point that the Lord cleanses Isaiah and it's at this point that the Lord uses him. And so it is with us as well. In his presence, we are devastated by our condition. But that's where he meets us and cleanses us and fits us for service. And having been in the presence of the Lord, the fear of man melts away and we are enabled to confess him boldly. Can I ask you, and I ask my own heart the same thing, who do you seek glory from this morning? Whose displeasure do you fear? Whose acceptance do you prioritize over the glory that comes from God? Is it because that for all that you know about God, that he is a stranger to you and you to him? Is that your state before God? Then now's the time to come in repentance and ask God humbly to reveal himself to you. Well, we've talked about our first point why they did not receive him. Let's talk about our second point, what the outcome would be. And as we've said already, there was both a positive and a negative outcome. Look with me at verse 44 to 46. 
And Jesus cried and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Notice the word here, whoever, repeated three times. Whoever believes in me, verse 44. Whoever sees me, verse 45. Whoever believes in me, verse 46. And I want to focus for a moment on that word, whoever. In in this invitation to the whoever, I believe, as I've said before, that we see the positive outcome of the Jews' failure to receive him. The invitation went out to the Gentiles. If a door was closing on the nation of Israel for their unbelief, another door was opening, a a door no longer just to the Jew, but for whoever believes in me. And this is consistent with what we see throughout Scripture. In Romans 11, 11, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the unbelief of the Jews, says, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And it was God's plan from a past eternity that the Gentiles, that the nations would be brought in. Isaiah prophesied this when he said, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Romans 10, 20. And again in Romans 15, 12, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And I think we see a foreshadowing of it in this chapter as we've already commented. In the Pharisees who say, look, the world has gone after him, verse 19. In the Greeks that came to Philip and said, sir, we wish to see Jesus, verse 21. In Jesus' response, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, verse 24. And again, in Jesus' words, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, verse 32. So again, if the door was closing on the nation of Israel for a season, because of their unbelief, it was opening to every tribe and nation, and that was the positive outcome. But let's look more deeply into this invitation to the whoever believes. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. That is, as Barnes puts in his notes, Quote, his faith does not terminate on me, close quote. Most certainly it is in Jesus they believe, but it extends to the Father who sent him. But the opposite is true as well. To not believe him is to not believe in the Father who sent him. You know, you hear so many people today say, oh, yes, of course, yes, I believe in God, but you never hear them confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ unless it be in cursing. Last week I was speaking with a couple of people who introduced their belief system to me as being nominally Catholic and they made the statement that being Catholic we have the same God. But then one of them asked me whether I believe that what we are currently experiencing in Canada right now is hell. And I assured her that this was by no means hell but that hell was a very real place and the only way of escape was by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Well, in response, one spoke of her good works and the other confessed that she had never read the Bible but believed in a higher power. But neither one had a word to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet they professed to worship the same or believe in the same God. 
The God who declares that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 45 says that whoever sees him, sees him who sent me. This is an amazing statement. Whoever sees me, him, sees him who sent me. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, but get this, in the face of Jesus Christ. Think of that. Think of the brilliant light that lit up the word, world at the command of God at creation, the world that had been hitherto shrouded in darkness. That same God has the power to shine a more powerful light a more brilliant light into the darkness of our hearts. But how does he do it? It's in the face of Jesus. Is there darkness in your heart this morning? The darkness of ignorance and despair and moral failure. Do you chafe under the inability to change, the inability to chase away the darkness that presses in upon your world? The answer is to look into the face of Jesus, just like the company in Bethany was doing. While darkness was all around, there was light in their dwelling as they served and learned and worshipped at his feet. So the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Oh, that we would allow the light to shine in the dark recesses of our hearts. Oh, that that light would shine upon us as a congregation and produce repentance and revival. I hope that there's no one here this morning that chooses to remain in darkness. You know, there's a day coming, a time coming, when everything will be revealed by the light. Luke 12 says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. This past week, a Christian brother, I think he might be here this morning actually, was doing some work for me up north on our little cottage, and suddenly he heard a terrible crash. And he went and looked, and a large tree had toppled to the ground. Fortunately, nothing was in its way other than a a plumbing line, Otherwise, it could have been very serious. But when he looked at the base of the tree, he found that it was filled with rot and teeming with insects. And as he shared those pictures with me, I thought to myself of the years that those insects had done their work in the darkness, unseen, undetected, and how suddenly the truth about the integrity of that tree was exposed there for all to see. Is there a corner in my life, a corner in your life, that remains in darkness this morning? Dear brothers and sisters, let's invite, let's invite the Lord to shine his light upon it as we gaze into the face of Jesus and there find forgiveness, healing, and restoration. Well, we've talked about the negative outcome. Let's finally talk about the or the positive outcome, let's finally talk about the negative outcome of their rejection. And we get that in verse 47. And then in, the, in this, 
these verses 47 and 48, there's a serious warning. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus had not not come to judge, but to save. But the very words that he spoke came from the Father. To receive that word then was to receive eternal life. But those who rejected him, every word, and get this, every word that they heard and rejected would one day be used to judge them. And is it not true as well today? When we stand together and read the word of God and we declare, this is the word of the Lord. But do we really grasp the seriousness of that? How is it that some of us, and I'm not referring to obviously to everyone, but how is it that some of us, maybe one of us, can have such a take it or leave it attitude when we hear the word? Taking what feels good and dismissing what bores us or offends our sensibilities without a moment's thought as though they were merely the words of men. But they are not the words of men. They are the very words of God, and they are the very words by which you will be judged in a coming day if you reject them. Do you imagine that God would harden the hearts and blind the eyes of his chosen people for rejecting the testimony of his son and think that a lesser condemnation will fall upon you if you continue to reject the Lord Jesus Christ and discard his word? Could it be that your eyes have already been blinded, your heart already hardened so that you can no longer hear and respond to his pleadings? Is that how someone can sit there so cold and so callous, so untouched by his word? I plead with you this morning. If God is speaking to your heart, do not turn away, for it may be your very last opportunity. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I want to close with, by reading the words of that hymn by William Henry. And it's my earnest prayer that these words will never be your words. The harvest is past and the summer has ended. Alas, precious soul, this may be thy sad cry. The spirit is gone. I've so often offended, and now with the lost, I must perish and die. The harvest is past, and the summer is ended. The last call of mercy forever is gone. And down to the regions of darkness eternal, in anguish, I take my sad journey alone. The harvest is past. And the summer has ended, refusing entreaties still harder I've grown, salvation I've slighted, and now unforgiven, I reap for my soul the seed I have sown. The harvest is past, and the summer has ended. Awaken, dear soul, ere it be thy sad moan. The Savior is willing and waiting to save you. O come, ere his spirit forever has flown. The harvest is past, and I am not saved. How fearful the cost. For a soul to be lost. If that is your condition this morning, 
And if the Spirit of God is stirring your soul, then cry out to the Lord. Turn to him in repentance, as Isaiah did, and you will hear him say, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned. It's good news, and it's for you this morning. And if you turn to him, then he does not only forgive you, but he adopts you into your family. And then you are in the presence of your brothers and sisters in Christ, part of his church. And though the forces of darkness be arrayed against his church, as they were against that little house in Bethany, Jesus says of his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this morning he calls us to his own, his own to his table, to be in the presence of the very one who Isaiah met. Not to be terrified by our sin, but to partake of the symbols of his body and blood. Symbols that remind us that we belong to him, that he belongs to us, and to strengthen us for the journey ahead. So let's come to the Lord's table together this morning as brothers and sisters.